The scripture today is from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. I'm David, pastor here at Current. Thanks, Cindy. Um, Welcome. If you're here uh, visiting or checking things out for the first time or one of the first few times, I want to say especially welcome to you. Uh, for those of you who are in the Alpha Group or interested in the Alpha Group, this group that's uh, especially designed for folks who are either exploring the faith or very, very new to the faith, uh, it's, a, it's a place where we are creating an environment to, to ask safe questions and just have the ability just to ask the different things that might be on your heart without feeling like, you know, you have to know the answer or be in a group of Christians that, you know, hey, this is the answer, that, that sort of thing. That's starting tomorrow night. Uh, wait a minute, what am I saying? Tuesday night. So if you're in that, uh, will, will there be another email out going today? And if you're interested in that, uh, see us afterwards or make a little note on your card and we'll, we'll follow up with you. Um, well, today we're starting a new series. And to kind of kick it off, we're, we're looking at the very first part of Luke. Um, living in the Bay Area, it stands to reason, uh, since this is a place that's not known for especially being all that warm or receptive to Christianity, uh, that many uh, will look at the Christian faith, look at the Christian text, and say, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that. Or it's just a story, or it's just a bunch of uh, religious fables, or it's just legend. Uh, I can't, uh, it's not trustworthy, it's not reliable. Uh, maybe this has been uh, a point of dismissal for you or one of your friends that the Christian faith requires belief in the Bible. That's what makes the text before us so striking. Uh, it was written about 2,000 years ago. Uh, by a, a gospel writer named Luke, um, who's getting at, the, at a matter that I, 2,000 years ago that is, that is important to us today. And here's his striking claim, his statement. Uh, I've been writing this letter, I'm, I'm putting it together, this gospel account, verse 4, so that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught. Uh, that's an amazing thought uh, and a really, really uh, striking claim. The question then becomes, well, how can we be so sure? Uh, we are starting this new series, Walking with Jesus. We're going to be looking at, through the book of Luke. Basically, we've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. That is the part of the Bible uh, before the life of Jesus uh, since the summer and, and during the summer. So I thought, hey, you know, it'd be good to get back uh, for the, in, into uh, the New Testament, specifically the life of Jesus and his, and his ministry, um, because uh, we always want to give ourselves a well-rounded biblical diet. At least that's one of my goals here. Um, and I'll tell you, studying the life of Jesus, no matter where you're at spiritually, whether you've been following him for 40 years, four years, or you're just looking in to try to figure it out, is always a worthwhile endeavor. It's always profoundly relevant and, and helpful. And here, right off the bat, Luke, uh, who's written this account, uh, is, uh, stands out in an extraordinary way from all of the other Gospel writers, in fact. I mean, you know, you think of Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke is the only one that starts out with an introduction of, of sorts, a kind of a prologue, if you will. The others, for the most part, just jump straight in. Luke here spends some time developing, hey, this is, this is what's, what this is about. He's carefully, meticulously put together a case for us. Um, I think we in the Silicon Valley would have loved Luke. I mean, he's very data-driven. Uh, he was, he was uh, very... Uh, fact-driven. 
Uh, he was a, a, a high academic. Uh, he was a doctor, a physician. In fact, if you look at these first few verses in the original language, in the Greek, uh, scholars tell us that it's actually it's, it's, it's a sign of a really, ex, a really high expert in the field who really understands the language in terms of the, the structure, in terms of the grammar, the precision of the language. It, is, it all shows signs of a person who, who was really highly educated uh, for the time. And yet, after these first four, four verses, when he gets into the account, when he gets into the, where, he's, where he's heading after this introduction, it's written in everyday person's language, everyday speech. Uh, no one doubts that it's the same writer of the introduction as is the rest of the account, and yet he's setting things up in a highly academic way and then getting into really accessible language to help everybody understand this account. Uh, he's writing to Theophilus, we're told, um, whom we're not actually sure who that was. Our best guess is that he was a Roman government official, only because he's addressed uh, most excellent uh, Theophilus. That was a, a way of honoring uh, Roman government officials, calling the most excellent um, as, as a title. Um, but we're not sure. The, the, the word Theophilus actually means literally, it's two words come together, the, Theo, so, so God, and philia, love, so it means a lover of God. So this could just be a, a literary device that Luke's using to speak specifically to anybody who's eager to learn more about God. But regardless of who Theophilus is, Luke's point here at the very beginning, as we set out in this, in this series, we're looking at his book, is he's saying, I've done the work. I've done the investigating. I've compiled it all for you here so that you can know certainty what we're going to look at in this account going forward, this gospel of Jesus. So again, the question is, how can we be so sure? And what does that mean for us today? We're going to be looking at three things. Let me pray, and then, and then we'll get into them. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account that was put together for our, uh, for our benefit. Would you um, open it up to us? We know that your word says that with, apart from your help, apart from the Holy Spirit's help, we can't really understand these things for ourselves. So we ask, would your Holy Spirit touch us now as we study your word, as I teach it, we, we pray that you would uh, speak into our lives um, and have uh, what you'd have for us today, uh, each personally and collectively as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, first, Luke shows us that the gospel is about Jesus. Now, there's a duh point, uh, point if there ever was one, um, but hear me out. Uh, it's important to note what Luke is presenting and how it is he's presenting it. Uh, he begins, verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Uh, I've put together, verse 3, an orderly account. Uh, these things that are, that are happening, this account that he's, he's putting together is, of course, an account of Jesus. Um, and there's uh, something that I think, if you're just reading this or just kind of like maybe you're really familiar with this, you've, you've been reading this since you're a little kid, um, there's something profoundly uh, unprecedented about what Luke and for that matter the other gospel writers have done here that I don't think we let sink in. Uh, remember, this text is written about 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. Uh, this was not the style people wrote back then. It was not the style people wrote if they were putting together fables or legend, whatever you want to say. Uh, it, it just wasn't happening for, for centuries and centuries, in fact. Uh, one person, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, who is really a literary giant, world-class expert in that field, uh, by the way, was a, was a really strong atheist who became a believer. He wrote, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either it is reportage or else 
some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. Or think about it in terms of other religious texts. What we have here that Luke's putting together for us is not a compilation, not a collection of teachings. It's not a collection of morality. Uh, certainly, there are teachings of Jesus we're going to look at going forward. Certainly, there's morality and, and different, different uh, thoughts on, on that. But ultimately, it's neither of those two things. What it is is an account about the person of Jesus. Uh, when I was in uh, England for an internship many years ago, I was uh, introduced, not introduced personally, I just introduced uh, to the preacher and minister, uh, Dick Lucas. He kind of was, was ministering at a church out of London. I think he's since retired, uh, but really gifted communicator, so I, I really listened into him. At one point, he said, someone had said, uh, just give me a watertight argument about the Christian faith without any holes, and I'll believe it. Just give me an argument, just, I'll believe in God if you give me something inescapable, an inescapable argument, and then to which Dick Lucas basically said this, I don't think God has provided us with a watertight argument though some would disagree with me, what God has provided you and me with is a watertight person with no holes in him. There's no escaping him. Jesus Christ is the watertight person against whom, in the end, there could be no argument. Now, I get that what we're talking about here is essentially circular reasoning, okay? What we're basically saying is, look, hey, Luke in the Bible is saying you can believe the Bible, Okay, that's circular reasoning. Okay, the Bible's saying believe it. Okay, I get that, and there's many things we could say into that. But let's just, for the sake of argument, be that as it may, for one moment, you and I have to make up our minds about Christ. However, and we have enough, indeed more than enough, to do so. Again, C.S. Lewis, who's just a help here, um, because of his literary expertise, at one point in his writings says that really, when you look throughout history. There are, at all the, all, all the writings, all the literary uh, texts that we have, really there are, by and large, three people that we know, beyond a doubt, who they were. We'll never get to meet them, but you know who they were. You know, you, you know how, they, how they tick, you know, you, just in an unmistakable way. Those three people are Boswell's Johnson, if you've ever read that uh, biography. I've been listening to it for, for a while now. It is thick, but it's, it's interesting. You get to learn. It's, it's a masterfully done biography. It's really one in which we compare uh, all others to. Boswell's Johnson, uh, Plato's Socrates, and Jesus of the Gospels are the three people. C.S. Lewis is like, really, at the end of the day, there's just no mistaking who they are. You can't make them up. Now, when you read about them, you just know their fingerprint on, on a given situation. And of course, of those three, by far and away, the most corroborating evidence we have is for Jesus. He had four biographical accounts written for his life. And Luke's account, by the way, matches Jesus' account, uh, excuse me, John's account of Jesus, but in a nuanced way. As a physician, as Luke's talking about, he's talking about details and like, you know, symptoms, and he's really talking about it in such a way that you can see clearly he's got this academic uh, focus on it. He's got this, this, this physician's mind uh, to it. Uh, the, this account, Luke, and, this, and all these gospel accounts give you more than you need to know Jesus and his claims with certainty. Um, we can't make this up. I mean, take, for instance, the person of Jesus in terms of his radical love. Who is Jesus spending so much of his time loving? Uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church or read your Bible, you know he spent his time loving the social outcasts, the marginalized, the poor, the sinners, the prostitutes. Jesus, 
if, if we were to take up the way that he was living today in, in many respects, it would be scandalous, radical. And yet 2,000 years ago, it's crazy to think of what, what he was doing in terms of how he would love, and he would stop everything he was doing, being as busy as he was, to focus just all his attention uh, on, on one soul that he came across. He was always protecting the broken and the marginalized. This kind and gentle Jesus would often get most animated when the very people who were attacking these marginalized people attacked him for doing so. Jesus was normally just kind of kind, gentle, doing his thing, but when these religious leaders, how's that for irony, came up into his face and said, how dare you do this? Jesus would step up and say, no, no, no. And what's fascinating to me is when you look at these accounts, more often than they're not, they're actually trying to trap Jesus in his ways. They're trying to pin him on some sort of like law or rule that will get him into trouble. And yet, even with that being the case, he doesn't hesitate to step up, trap that it may be laid, and yet still prevail, by the way, in a way that is still loving and honoring to the people who are just jerks. Uh, Jesus was amazing. Um, it would be incredibly difficult to plausibly make up the way this guy loved with such unpredictability and yet with striking consistency. Um, and we have that on every page for four gospel accounts. And then there's this other thing about Jesus. Okay, you have this radical love, and there's this other thing about Jesus that shows up on basically every single page of his life, that little thing that he claimed to be God. <laughs> on every single page, just about, saying he, has the, he had the authority to forgive sins, that he was before the world uh, and before all creation, that he is the way, the truth, the life. That, the gospel is about Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, and it forces you and I to make up our minds. What are we going to do with him? Um, because Jesus doesn't let us, on his own terms, may, let us just dismiss him as a nice moral religious figure, a great teacher, maybe a reformer of justice who was just ahead of his time. No, if, if you take him at his terms, he's either Lord or he's not. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I, I, I uh, referenced this over a year ago, uh, comes from the great and eloquent Bono of U2. He said, I think it's a defining question, who was Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. Uh, the gospel is about Jesus. Uh, the gospel is historical. Second thought. Um, the gospel is historical. Luke calls attention to his investigation coming from verse 2, eyewitnesses. Um, this is something the Bible doesn't shy away from, by the way, but over and over again, Luke and others, Peter, Paul, uh, John, and all of their writings, they're basically saying something to the effect of, guys, this is not fanciful things happening here. We are talking about eyewitness accounts. In fact, if you look at 1 uh, Corinthians 15, uh, there's this great summarization, uh, summarizing of the gospel there, um, where it says, hey, it, Paul is saying in this uh, most influential of chapters, he's saying, guys, this is of first importance. 
Okay, I'm going to tell you the gospel, and I, let me just summarize it for you in, in a matter of first importance. I remember when I first read that when I was a little guy. I was like, I think that was the first thing I underlined in my Bible. I was like, okay, if there's something that's important to underline, it's out of a text that says that's all important, and it's saying this part is especially important. So I underlined it. Um, but here's what it says. Listen to what's the most important in terms of what Paul is saying. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word, I preached you. Otherwise, you, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for your sins, uh, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and, the 12, and then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. This is fascinating. He's saying, here's what's of most importance, okay? Jesus died on the cross. That sounds pretty important to the gospel. He was buried. What is he saying by that? Meaning it really happened. That he rose again. That's also kind of important. Also of the first importance, he's talking about all these people who can bear witness to the fact. Of this most importance of, of, of things, he is saying, note that the 12 whom you can talk to, the 500 whom you can talk to, myself, we've all seen it. We bear witness to it. In his letter to the early church, Peter put it this way. Uh, for we do not follow cleverly devised stories when we, uh, when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what I believe all this is saying and, and, and what all this means for us. On its own reasoning, the Bible is saying Christianity might be good for you. It might help you live a better life, be a better person, maybe. But if it didn't happen historically, then it matters not. Then it's not worth anything. Paul, even in that same chapter, actually, we already quoted this, he said, otherwise you've believed in vain. He goes on to say Christians should be pitied above all people if this didn't happen. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die if this didn't happen. And yet, and yet, it can be trusted, the Scriptures, with certainty. Why? Because it's based on eyewitnesses' accounts. Um, history tells us that many of these people died martyrs' deaths based, based on their belief that Jesus was who he said he is and died and rose again. Peter, Paul, all the apostles, save one who was exiled in the end of his life, all killed. Um, it's obviously beyond the scope of our time today uh, to get into all the historical arguments, but let me just give a few. And, um, and uh, we'll take two of these actually from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, just because it's really helpful. Actually, he kind of more or less condenses uh, and summarizes some thoughts from Richard Bauckham's uh, were Jesus and the eyewitnesses, if you want to look into that further. But uh, let's consider uh, how the gospel accounts are historical rather than legend. Number one, the timing is far too early for the gospels to be legend. Uh, Matthew and Mark and, and Luke were written at most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Those are conservative numbers, um, but most, most think uh, could be even earlier. Paul's letters were written 15 to 20 years after Jesus um, this wasn't taken from, from Tim Keller's book, but another book, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is also worth checking out if you want to look further. If we could put up the chart, um, what you'll see in this chart that's being put up, hopefully you can read it in the back, is basically the gold standard for the measure of authenticity. And on top, you have, uh, you know, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. We see it was written about 800 B.C. And the earliest copies we have of those texts are dated back to about 400 B.C., 
And of the numbers of those copies, we have, we have about 643. Uh, that's really good. Um, if you go down the list, you see, uh, for instance, the Gaelic Wars, uh, written about 100 uh, to 44 B.C., uh, earliest copies we have are, are date back to 980, so about 1,000 more or less uh, time gap. We have 10 copies of those, which is really interesting because when I took history class uh, in, in college, uh, first of all, the Gaelic Wars are fascinating, but, but no one was, the, the, the instructor and all the literature, uh, literature around it was not questioning the authenticity or reliability that Caesar wrote it or, or the, the content is what it is. Uh, we can look through more of these, but look down at, at the New Testament, including the Gospel of Luke, uh, which was written in the years after Christ, so 50 to 100 A.D. And the earliest fragments we have today go back to about 130 A.D. In fact, after the publication of this uh, chart, um, there is a leading scholar in the field who actually believes that recently found fragments date back all the way to within a couple years of, of Matthew's account. Uh, it's not, not everybody... Uh, 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 there's not a consensus on that, but still, um, there's some, some documents going way, way back. Um, by 200 AD, uh, a gap of about 100 years, we have books from the New Testament, entire books. Um, by 400 to 500 years uh, AD, uh, about the same gap of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey we, ha- we now have, you, you see the number, 24,600 copies. Tim Keller shares the story of Anne Rice, who's probably most famous for writing the book uh, Interviews with a Vampire. Uh, not suitable for, suitable for kids type reading, um, but uh, she wrote that. Uh, she, she was raised Catholic, lost her faith in college, uh, married an atheist, and shocked the literary world uh, when she uh, uh, announced her returning to Christianity. And the reason for this, Tim Keller is talking about this story, the reason for this is she had begun doing extensive research about the historical Jesus by reading the work of Jesus scholars at the most respected academic institutions. And their thesis was the the biblical documents we have aren't historically reliable. But when she started to look into it, she was amazed at how weak the arguments were. Here's how she said it, and this is out of an afterword from, from our later book, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt. She said, some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus was, was, uh, who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture, which had been floated around the circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. That's her take. It's hard to discount Facts like the early church being made up of eyewitnesses dying for their belief in this. Uh, Not just a few, and not just in one pocket place, but scattered throughout and independently of each other. It's hard to discount the fact that the early church started to immediately worship Jesus as Lord and God, by the way, whose first followers were out of the Jewish monotheistic faith. They would have been about the last to jump ship and, and worship Jesus as Lord, and yet... That's how it began from the earliest of days. The gospel is historical. The timing is far too early for the gospels to be legend. And another thought before we press on. The content is far too counterproductive for the gospels to be legend. Uh, here, uh, what we're talking about is there's plenty of cases in the accounts, Luke's included, where it's just like there's details that are included that are either uh, not really pushing the narrative forward or pushing the narrative back. So take, for instance, there's a bunch of random details in there that don't really help things. For instance, Jesus is in a boat, lying in the, in, in the stern, 
on a cushion. It's like, what does is, what is knowing that Jesus was lying on a pillow do to help push the narrative forward? Answer, nothing, okay? Other than knowing that it was good, Jesus was comfortable. It doesn't really help us in terms of the narrative. Or take, for instance, the classic example of the, uh, um, the religious leaders bringing the woman caught in adultery in front of Jesus, and he goes down, if you know the story, stoops in, starts drawing in the dirt. I can't begin to tell you how much has been written on what he probably was, conjecture of like, what was he writing? Oh, he was doing Bible verses in the sand. Or, oh, he was drawing a picture of the cross. Or, oh, he was just averting his eyes because she probably was not clothed. And any number of things people can check. But what does his getting down and, and, and write, writing in the sand do to help push the narrative forward ultimately? Not a whole lot. Uh, why would these details be included? Maybe because they just were details that they wanted to include. Details that, uh, as he compiled it, just, just were there, so they were mentioned. Or think about these details that are used that would have been counterprotective. It would have pushed the, gospel, the, the, the intention of the original writers, if there's some power block putting together the scriptures, it would have pushed their intentions backwards, if anything. Um, for instance, Tim Keller talks about the, the, the classic example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane happened literally just a few hours before Jesus went to the cross. And what was he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed? Praying, God, please, Father, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not be done, not mine. What was he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced death? He was shaking in his boots. He was wavering. He was scared, if you can say. Why would they put that in there when all other religious figures of prominence, when they faced death, boy, they were, bring it on, kill me. But Jesus was not. Why would that be included? How would that help your case? Um, Or, for instance, uh, the fact that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. We love that, don't we? Uh, We love the fact that women were the first resurrection right on. Of course, back then, it wouldn't have helped their case. Hear me. That was 2,000 years ago in an extremely patriarchal society. Women were not considered credible witnesses in the court of law, which makes us shake our head. Which, by the way, it's interesting how you know, guys are considered better witnesses than more credible than, than gals. But anyways, that was, the, that was the date and time in which this was written. And yet, the people bearing witness to the greatest news ever, the first, were women. Why would that be included if that would not help your case? It would only could hurt in that patriarchal society. Um, and there's many uh, accounts that are filled with details like these. The only reason why it would be included is if Luke and the others were meticulously, carefully pulling together an orderly account based on eyewitnesses, based on how it happened, the historical account of it, so that you and I may know with certainty the things that we are being taught. Uh, there's more we could be said. I, we don't have the time. Again, I point you to the books by Richard Bauckham, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You, you can read up more if you'd like more. We can, I can share more later. So the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is, is historical. And then finally, the gospel is the good news. Okay, today's, again, my duh points, okay? Duh statement points. If you've been around for a length of time, you know that gospel literally means good news. In fact, most often when I say it, just because the word gospel is not in our regular uh, vernacular, I will say gospel, which means good news. If you've been around current, you know that. Gospel means you, angelion, good news, okay? Um, uh, So it might be a straightforward thought, but it's absolutely essential. And Luke tells us right off the bat, 
why that is. Verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That word fulfilled can also be translated accomplished. Luke is writing about things fulfilled, things accomplished. I've heard it said uh, this way before. I think it's helpful, helpful to think of it this way. The gospel is not good, uh, good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not an how, a how-to book on how to get your life together or how to be a better person. Even more interesting, the gospel is not a book on here's how to, here's how to get yourself right with God. Here's how to get yourself saved. Um, the gospel includes things that help us in our lives. The gospel absolutely is about salvation, but it's not good, it's not good advice. It's good news. The gospel is Jesus came to fulfill, to accomplish what you and I cannot do for ourselves. And there's nothing, no greater news than that. Uh, this account that Luke has written is not a compilation of teachings of morality. It's an investigated, orderly account based on the eyewitnesses to the good news and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, and what is the work of Christ? Uh, Jesus at one point in his ministry said, I have not come to abolish the law. Now, what did he mean by that? He's talking about all this part of the Bible, basically, leading up to his life. He's like, I have not come to abolish all the things in the Bible, in the Scripture text, that show that God is, is just, that He's merciful, that He's loving, that He's caring, that He's gracious, and that He wants us to do the same things. I've not come to abolish any of that. I've not come to abolish, he, he goes on to say, but I have come to fulfill the law. Uh, there's a story at the end of Luke's account, this very same one that we're looking through back in uh, Luke 24, uh, where Jesus had just been risen from the dead. Uh, he kind of shows up incognito with a couple of people who were walking around, a couple of his followers, um, and he kind of says to them, uh, he's, he said, what, what's, what's going on, guys? What are you guys thinking about? Well, it's just been a couple of days since he had, he had uh, uh, risen from the dead. Uh, they're all downtrodden. They're all downcast. And he just, and uh, they basically say, well, there's this guy, this guy, uh, Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, and uh, he was crucified. Uh, just a little ago, he was crucified, and there's some rumors that he's been raised from the dead, but wow, we don't know. We don't know. And check out what, what Jesus says in response. Luke records it. He said, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He was saying, when you look at all of the scriptures, all of it, it's all pointing to our need for Jesus and all pointing to his fulfilling what we could not do uh, for ourselves on the cross for the sins of the world, giving forgiveness. Uh, to fulfill what you and I deep down can't fulfill on our own, bringing us back into relationship with God forever. That's the good news of the Bible. Uh, that's the gospel, and I'm so glad it's not good advice, because if it was good advice, we'd be stuck. I'd be stuck. Um, but the good news is something that we receive. Uh, that's how Luke kicks off his, his text. And by the way, I didn't go any further than for the first four verses, because we get into the Christmas story. I want to come back to Christmas stories during Christmas. Um, but that's the first four verses. It's, 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 it's powerfully packed, richly beautiful, and it's him making the point that we can know with certainty about Jesus and his work. We have more than enough. So the question first is, will you receive it? Maybe you're here today, you've never received what Jesus has done. Maybe you've been checking things out, you've been coming to current for a little bit. Jesus says, today is the day of salvation. 
I stand at the door and knock. Whoever would open their door and have me eat with them, I will eat with them. Today is the day of salvation. You can receive him today. Maybe you're not quite there yet. You know what Luke is, is inviting you and me into? It's, it's to investigate, to look in a little bit more deeply. Um, or maybe you have received him. What, is this, what does this mean for you? It seems to me at least two thoughts, uh, real quickly. Uh, it means we've got to spend time letting this, this word, this, these, these accounts, uh, sink in, all of it. And if it's a historically and reliably true, it also means that we're not free to kind of pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. There's no room to say, you know, I like this part, and I'm going to read this part and not read this part. Um, we've got to wrestle through even as we've got to figure it out. For instance, we're not free to say, you know what, I, just, and I could feel this way. I, I don't know about this part about setting priorities. I don't know about what this says about my sex life. I don't know what this says about my financial health. I don't know about this part that says I need to love my enemies. Um, but we're, but if it's God's word, certain and reliable, it's good news for our lives. Therefore, we need to read it, take it in, uh, read it comprehensively. And the second thought here is, if it's really accurate, historically true and reliable, uh, it's a good news that needs to be shared. Um, I really actually resonate with Anne uh, Rice's uh, account there. Remember the gal I mentioned uh, wrote the book Interview with Vampire and kind of came, came back to her faith? Um, I don't relate with her on the book writing part or any of that sort of walking away from my faith, but I do, I do relate with the part. There was a season where I was just like, boy, I got to look into this. Like I've been hearing, you know, if you go, if you go to Cal, and I'm sure many of you guys, the colleges you go to, these, the, what we're talking about today is quickly like just, you, you understand. Um, and so I started looking into it because everybody's saying you can't believe it. it's legends, fabrication, and so on and so forth. But when I started doing that, especially, by the way, looking at the primary sources, I, it actually strengthened my faith, if anything. That's worthwhile if you haven't done that before. Um, but you know what? That aside, our task as followers of Jesus ultimately is not about proving or disproving faith, the, the faith or the scriptures. That's not our task. Uh, we need to equip ourselves to be able to do it, but that's not our task. Our task is to do what Luke is doing here. What is that? Holding out Jesus. Presenting him as who he is and letting folks make up their mind. By the way, that's our vision statement as a church, to point people to Jesus. Uh, how can you, like Luke, point people to Jesus? Because ultimately, the entire Bible, including Luke's own account, is about what he's fulfilled, what he's accomplished for us. So we get to attest to that. We get to bear testimony to it, his good news, his gospel. Let's pray. Uh, first off, from time to time, I, I like to give opportunity for those of you who are here. If you'd like an opportunity to receive Christ and what he's done for you, I don't want to pass up on that opportunity. Uh, if you'd like to put your faith in Jesus for what he's done for you on the cross uh, by receiving uh, forgiveness from sins and a restored relationship with God uh, because of what he's done and what, what the Father did in raising him to life, you can receive that today. It's just a belief in our heart, receiving what he's done based entirely on what he's done, nothing that we can do. And if you'd like to receive what Jesus has done for you, you can raise your hand today. I'll see it. I'll pray for you. It's, it's not the raising the hand that does anything. We, we know that. It's what's happening in our heart. But I'll see it. I'll pray for you. More importantly, God sees and understands what's, what's in your heart. Just give you a moment. If you'd like to receive what Jesus has done for you, you can raise your hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. 
Um, thank you so much that um, the way in which it's put together, that you ultimately put it together through, through your servants like Luke, John, Peter, and others, um, that it's not just kind of fanciful stuff, and it's not just kind of like dodging the matters that are important to us. For instance, hey, can we trust this? Is it reliable? Uh, it, it deals with that sort of thing head on. In fact, that's the way we're starting this series, because that's the way Luke started. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you even more for who your word points to and what he's done for us. Thank you for Jesus. Um, as a church, would you help us to uh, follow you? Would you help us to become more like him? And would you help us to share him with those around us? Would you strengthen our faith in doing that? We ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.